0: Chapter Twenty-One of Famous Assassinations of History by Francis Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty-One: Assassination of the Duke de Berry, February Thirteenth, eighteen twenty. The political situation in France after the overthrow of Napoleon and the restoration of the Bourbons was even more difficult and more precarious for the governing classes than it was in Germany. The French nation, proud in the consciousness of having occupied the first place in Europe for twenty years, chaffed at the idea of living under a king whom foreign rulers and foreign armies had imposed on France, and who in consequence had to act in blind obedience to the dictates of these foreigners. The danger of a new violent outbreak against the Bourbon government was therefore ever present not only to the French mind, but to the mind of Europe and to guard against it the foreign powers had made it one of the terms of peace with france that a foreign army of occupation should hold possession of the northern and northeastern provinces of france until the entire war indemnity exacted from the vanquished country had been paid while the foreign occupation was ostensibly a financial measure it was in reality a military measure giving to the foreign powers the keys to the interior of france and to paris in case a new invasion should become necessary not only was the position of the king rendered difficult by his political opponents the imperialists and the republicans but its hardships and difficulties were materially aggravated by the senseless and extravagant demands of the royalists who had in large number returned to france with the foreign armies these royalists many of whom had been absent from france for twenty years or more on their return from their voluntary exile found their estates and manors which had been confiscated under the revolution in the possession of strangers all the superior offices in the civil service and the higher positions in the army which they claimed as their own by right of birth were filled by men of low extraction they therefore turned to the king and demanded of him the restoration of their lost estates of their aristocratic privileges the king louis the eighteenth was perhaps the most intelligent of all the monarchs of europe but he lacked force of character and moreover his long life in exile with its pleasures and enjoyments as a sybarite and an epicurean had but poorly qualified him for his suddenly imposed tasks he was expected by europe to hold his own in a population the majority of whom were opposed to him and who had learned that a king could be easily got rid of if the people did not want him. Although Louis Eighteenth, with his penetrating sagacity, clearly saw the instability of his throne, he honestly wished to make the best of the chance the fortune of war had given him. He was willing to give the French people a liberal government, provided it could be done without endangering the throne and without violating the pledges given to the monarchs who had reinstated him he might have even more energetically opposed the reactionary demands of the ultra royalists who recognized his younger brother the comte d'artois as their leader if his experiences especially during the hundred days had not filled him with disgust and suspicion toward the imperialists while napoleon was in elba louis the eighteenth kept all the bonapartist generals and high officials in office relying on their promises and assurances of fidelity but on napoleon's return they all betrayed him and either flocked to the standards of the emperor or declared their adhesion to his cause as soon as he had set foot on french soil perhaps the man who had sinned most in this respect was marshal ney who in a personal interview asked of the king as a personal favour to be placed in command of an army corps and to be sent against the emperor pledging himself to bring napoleon in chains before his throne louis granted the marshal's request but instead of capturing the emperor ney went over to him with his entire army corps and fought at waterloo again as the bravest of the brave in the imperial army in vain he sought death on the field when he saw that the battle was lost it was reserved for him to die by french bullets in the luxembourg garden of paris fired by royalist officers disguised as common soldiers from party hatred these men had volunteered to act as executioners of one of the greatest military heroes of revolutionary france labedoyer and other famous generals who were traitors to louis were executed others saved their lives by flight the great carnot and other imperialists were banished from france the impression made upon the ultra-royalists by these severe measures against men who had shed lustre upon france was in the highest degree deplorable these fanatics supposed that the bonapartists and republicans of the whole kingdom were utterly at their mercy they secretly organized a special government under the presidency of the comte at the Pavilion Marsan, for the purpose of bringing to justice all those who had participated in the Napoleonic coup d'etat or in the revolution of seventeen eighty nine, a new era of terrorism was organized by these white jacobins, as they were significantly called, and the most cruel excesses were committed in the provinces. La Vendee, which had fought so heroically for the Bourbon dynasty treated the imperialists and republicans generously but in the south where religious fanaticism added fuel to the flame of political hatred the most atrocious excesses and murders were committed avignon nîmes montpellier toulouse and other cities of the south were disgraced by the butchery of hundreds of protestants in some of them the victims of religious and political persecutions died at the stake at Avignon, the famous Marshal Brun was assassinated. At Toulouse, General Ramel. At Nîmes, Count de la Garde. Wholesale assassinations and butcheries were organized. Armed bands, fanaticized by the priests, roamed through the country and butchered the Protestants en masse. Ten thousand of the unfortunates fled to the mountain recesses of the Cevennes choosing rather to die from hunger and cold than to be tortured to death juries composed of the most intolerant royalists lent their aid to these outrages by condemning the protestants to death and acquitting the assassins the veterans of napoleon's army and forty thousand officers many of whom had served with distinction under the imperial eagles were driven from their homes and wandered from village to village begging for bread and shelter the northern provinces were spared these outrages but the one hundred and fifty thousand foreign soldiers stationed in their towns and fortresses were terrible reminders of the humiliation and shame which the restoration of the bourbon had brought upon france the french chambers were entirely under the control of the extreme royalists they enacted laws which reduced the political conditions of france to those which had existed prior to seventeen eighty nine They looked upon the revolutionary era and the empire as upon a lawless interregnum, which should be ignored by the government, and they demanded that all the old institutions of the kingdom should be revived. They were so bold and so insolent that they overawed the government for a while. Very reluctantly the king consented to several tyrannical laws for instance the law referring all political crimes to special courts composed of one officer and four judges from whose decision no appeal could be taken but the king saw to his regret that his acquiescence in these immoderate demands had no other effect than to make the ultra-royalists bolder and more arrogant they demanded a curtailment of the right of suffrage a re-enactment of the right of primogeniture and other feudal measures the king's patience was exhausted he refused to sanction any of these laws and dissolved the chambers in their impotent rage the disappointed ultra-royalists applied to the foreign powers asking their intervention in behalf of absolute royalty and imploring them to compel the king to desist from his pernicious protection of jacobins and regicides metternich sent this strange petition to the french government but neither the king nor his favorite minister monsieur de cazis was scared by such foolhardy steps They coolly ignored them and courageously inaugurated a series of political reforms in order to reassure public opinion. Instead of reducing the number of electors, as the ultras demanded, they largely increased it. To the periodical press and the daily newspapers was given greater liberty. The censorship, which had been exceedingly annoying, was abolished. At the same time, by the able financial management of the Duc de Richelieu, the 1,600,000,000 francs war indemnity was reduced to 502,000,000 francs, and a large number of the foreign troops were withdrawn from the northern provinces. These liberal and patriotic measures followed one another in quick succession, and made a very favorable impression upon the people the liberal parties were willing to cooperate with the government in its endeavor to restore the prosperity of the country to relieve the distress of the masses and to free france from foreign occupation the chambers of eighteen eighteen and eighteen nineteen also cooperated with the government and the liberal party was represented in them by a small number of illustrious men such men as lafayette general foy benjamin constant and who were more patriots than partisans. In fact, everything indicated a return to speedy prosperity when an event occurred which at one blow crushed the hopes of the patriots, paralyzed the hand of the government, and reinstated the extremists in power. This event was the assassination of the Duc de Berry, the hope of the Bourbon dynasty on its return from exile the royal family of france consisted of the king formerly comte de Vervence, the king's brother the comte d'artois and his two sons the duc d'angouleme and the duc de berry the comte d'artois the presumptive heir to the throne was born in seventeen fifty seven and was consequently fifty seven years old on his return to paris he was ultra-royalistic in his political views and was considered the head of the extremists. His eldest son, the Duc Angoulême, was born in 1775 and had retired from France with his father at the commencement of the Revolution. He was a man of very mediocre ability, but of exemplary character. In 1799 he was married to his cousin, Maria Theresa Charlotte, daughter of Louis the Sixteenth who had passed her unhappy childhood in prison, which she had left only in 1795. She was worshipped by the entire royal family as an angel of kindness and mercy. They had no children. The younger son, the Duc de Berry, was born in 1778 and had passed his youth and early manhood in exile. He had a more manly character than his brother and the French nobility of the old régime looked upon him as the hope of the Bourbon dynasty. Far from being a genius, the Duke de Berry was a man of good intelligence, brave, dashing, and the very type of a French officer, prior to the revolution. He had many of the generous traits, but also some of the vices, of that elegant and high-spirited class of young men. While living in exile in England, he formed a liaison with a young Englishwoman who bore him two daughters, to whom he was greatly attached, and whom he took to Paris and placed in a young ladies' academy. In 1816 the king married him to a Neapolitan princess, Caroline, daughter of the crown prince of that kingdom, a handsome, high-spirited, healthy young woman, who gave promise of giving the dynasty direct heirs the newly married couple lived very happily together and enjoyed life in the french capital to its fullest extent they were really the official representatives of royalty and its splendors neither the king nor the duc d'anglerem cared much for the entertainment balls and receptions of court life the prominence thus given to the duc de berry and the expectation that through him the elder line of the bourbon would be continued explained fully why he was singled out as the victim of assassination he was not only identified with the extreme royalists so odious to the people but with him out of the way it was only a question of time when the elder branch of the dynasty would die out entirely no more issue being expected from the duc Dangle même who had been married already twenty years without having children such were at least the considerations of the young man who undertook the perilous task of killing the duc de berry and who fully accomplished his purpose the young man was jean-pierre louvel a resident of versailles an enthusiastic admirer of napoleon whom he considered the living embodiment of the greatness and honor of france Napoleon's dethronement he wanted to revenge on the Bourbon, in whose interest it had taken place, and who, in his opinion, were utterly unworthy to rule over the French nation. Louvel was a saddler, thirty-two years of age, debilitated in appearance, and considered a political fanatic by all who knew him. He had no family or relations except one sister, considerably older than himself, who had brought him up and with whom he lived he hated the bourbon so intensely that in eighteen fourteen when the royal family landed at calais on their return from exile he intended to make an attempt on the life of louis the eighteenth but the great enthusiasm of the people discouraged him during all these years his wrath against the bourbon had steadily grown and he had never for a moment abandoned his plan of killing the whole family first the duc de Berry, then the duc d'Angoulême, then the comte de Troyes, and finally the king. He considered de Berry the most important and the most dangerous man of the whole family, because in him were centered the hopes of continuing the dynasty. He had been very persistent. He had found employment in the royal stables at Versailles, and whenever the duc de Berry was out hunting he tried to find an opportunity to get near him. He frequently went to Paris and studied the advertisements of new plays or operas, expecting that the duke would attend the first performance. Twenty times he had been close to him on such occasions, but had always been prevented by the number of friends or attendants surrounding him from getting near enough to stab him, and stab him so well that he could not escape, for everything depended on making a success of the attempt." after long and patient waiting he found his opportunity it was during the last days of the carnival preceding the season of lent in february eighteen twenty the grand masquerade ball at the opera was to take place on the thirteenth and it was a matter of absolute certainty that both the duke and the duchess de berry who were very fond of dancing would attend it When Lavelle got up and dressed he had a joyful presentiment that that day would bring him the realization of his long-cherished plan. He had in his possession two daggers of very superior quality, both sharp as razors and strong enough to penetrate flesh and sinew to the handle. He had studied the human anatomy well enough to know exactly where to strike his victim. He chose the smaller dagger of the two because he could more easily conceal it took his supper with good appetite and without betraying unusual agitation, and then he started on his mission of death. He was promptly at his post at eight o'clock when the carriage of the Duke de Berry drove up to the private entrance reserved for the members of the royal family. The Duke was not expected so early in the evening, and consequently there were not so many attendants gathered near the entrance the duke jumped out of the carriage and held out his arm to help the duchess to alight this was the proper moment for louvel if he wanted to commit the crime he was on the point of rushing toward the duke when the smiling and lovely face of the duchess appeared in the light of the lantern and this sight paralyzed the arm of the murderer he hesitated at the thought that his crime would plunge these two happy persons into nameless misery and before he had recovered his equanimity, the duke and his wife had disappeared behind the entrance door of the theater. Louvel blamed himself for his faintness of heart and wanted to postpone the deed to some later day, but the thought that he would have to go back to Versailles in a few days, and that no such opportunity might offer itself for a long time, caused him to change his mind. That very night his plan must be executed, and either the duke or himself should perish. For several hours he strolled through the streets in the neighborhood of the opera-house, went to the garden of the Palais-Royal, and back again, always keeping a watchful eye on the carriages that stood waiting for the call of their owners. At twenty minutes past eleven the carriage of the Duc de Berry drove up to the entrance-door, Louvel stood nearby almost hidden in the shadow of the wall and entirely unnoticed by the attendants of the royal equipage he was not kept waiting for a long time for a little accident had occurred which induced the duchess to return much sooner than they had anticipated their box at the opera house was near that of the duke and duchess d'orleans who were also at the theatre that evening. The two families were on terms of great intimacy, especially the two duchesses, both being Neapolitan princesses. At one of the intermissions of the performance de Berry and his wife went to the box of the Duc d'Orléans for a friendly chat, but on their return to their own box a door opposite was quickly opened and struck the duchess with such violence that she felt very unwell. In her delicate condition, she was anciente at the time, she thought it would be better for her to return home than to wait for the close of the performance and the masquerade ball. The duke, therefore, conducts his wife back to the carriage and lifts her into it. The comtesse de Bédécy, her lady of honor, takes her seat by her side. The duke shakes hands with both ladies, and with a smiling au revoir, I'll be home soon, steps back from the carriage at this moment louvel rushes forward lays his left hand on the duke's right shoulder and plunges his dagger with so much force into the duke's right side that the weapon remains in the wound the duke mortally wounded sinks to his knees and utters a slight scream more of surprise than of pain as is usually the case in such assaults THE VICTIM HAD RATHER FELT THE SHOCK THAN THE WOUND, AND ONLY WHEN HE REACHED OUT WITH HIS HAND TO THE SPOT WHERE HE HAD BEEN HURT HE FOUND THE HANDLE OF THE DAGGER AND COMPREHENDED THE MEANING OF THE ATTACK. HE THEN CRIED OUT, I AM STRUCK TO DEATH, I HAVE BEEN ASSASSINATED, AND AS HE PULLED THE DAGGER FROM THE WOUND A STREAM OF BLOOD GUSHED FORTH the duke fainted in consequence of the loss of blood and was carried back into the opera house where the duchess followed him with loud screams in the first confusion louvel made his escape but he was soon overtaken and brought back to the scene of the murder the excitement and the indignation of the people were so great that he would have been torn to pieces but for the active protection of the police and of the servants of the Duke de Berry, who were afraid that by his death his accomplices and accessories to the crime might be shielded. The most eminent surgeons of Paris were immediately summoned to the assistance of the prince, but the wound was fatal and all their efforts were in vain. In the presence of death the Duke de Berry showed a very generous and magnanimous heart, he implored his wife his brother and all others surrounding his bed to use their influence with the king to get his murderer pardoned and expressed his profound sorrow that he had been stabbed by a frenchman up to his last moment the thought that his murderer would be executed in a cruel manner disturbed him and when toward morning the king came to bid him farewell he repeated his request that the murderer should be forgiven and not be executed but without eliciting the promise from his uncle. With this dying request for the life of his murderer on his lips, he expired very early in the morning. The sensation which the assassination of the Duc de Berry created, not only in Paris but throughout France and Europe, was enormous. All parties equally condemned and lamented the crime while the ultra-royalists deplored in the murder the extinction of all their hopes for the re-establishment of the old bourbon dynasty on a sure foundation the liberal parties foresaw that it would put an end to the liberal tendencies of the government of louis the eighteenth the sinister forebodings of the liberals were only too well founded the royalists tried at first to create the impression that the murder was but the symptom of a widespread conspiracy organized by the revolutionary elements of the kingdom against the royal family and the entire nobility and boldly charged the liberal policy of the government as being the cause of it in a session of the chambers one of the deputies went even so far as to move the impeachment of monsieur de decazes minister of the interior as an accessory to the crime committed by louvel while the chambers refused to act upon this infamous motion the entire royalistic press demanded the dismissal of de decazes and the king reluctantly yielded to the universal demand M. Cazes has slipped in the blood shed by Louvel's dagger, wrote Chateaubriand, in commenting on the dismissal of the liberal minister. And that era of reaction and repression commenced, which ten years later ended in the dethronement of the elder branch of the Bourbon dynasty, and in the flight and exile of Charles X. The entire liberal party was punished for the crime of one fanatic, Louvel was tried before the Chamber of Peers. He pleaded guilty, he denied having any accomplices, he had conferred with nobody, he recognized the dagger as his own, he gave his hatred and abhorrence of the Bourbon family as his only motive for the crime. He was convicted unanimously. He expressed no regret for what he had done, and died with stoical indifference. He was guillotined June 7, 1820. End of chapter 21